Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Charlotte Hayes, Director of Cultural Programs at the Independent Women's Forum. Welcome to our latest Working for Women podcast. IWF Foreign Policy Fellow Claudia Rosette is here with me today. Claudia's new book, What to Do About the UN, is just out, and it's hot. It's out from uh, Encounter Broadsides. It's a daring book. Claudia, um, let's just cut to the chase. Does the UN do more harm or more good? On balance, it does more harm, at least to the free world, the United States and our allies. And in contrast to the picture that the UN presents and the promises that its charter makes, which are, if you know, envision a more peaceful world, a parliament of men, all these wonderful fluttering flags, on balance, the UN is actually a gift to the tyrannies of the world and a corrosive and expanding influence on the parts of the world that are genuinely free, which tend not to actually promote war and go to war with each other, but uh, try to defend themselves. And the UN is actually an organizing framework for what very often, and certainly on balance, amounts to an assault on all that. How did this happen, Claudia? Because I imagine the UN was, was born out of idealism. Yeah, although it was an idealism that, of course, included Stalin at the time. Um, It was born at the end of World War II, sort of on the top of the ashes of the failed League of Nations. And the vision was that all the nations of the world would sit down together and hash out their differences, thus avoiding another world conflagration, and preferably war generally. Uh, The problem is that it was designed with that great vision, it was designed as a, an enormous collective of governments. And at the very beginning, it looked as if the U.S., uh, the U.K., the victors in World War II could steer this. Now, of course, one of the major victors was Stalin's Soviet Union. So from the beginning, you had an influence in there that was not actually about harmony and peace. Stalin was a terrible dictator who killed enormous numbers of his own people. And the Soviet Union was not a force for happiness and peace in the world unless you consider the peace of the grave. So from the beginning, that was incorporated as a major element. The Soviet Union sat there with a veto in the Security Council, which Russia has now inherited. So the vision sounded just wonderful. The practice from the beginning was much corrupted. But a lot of people say, okay, the UN's not perfect, but it's all we've got. How do you, how do you reply to this argument, Claudia? Okay, that's, that's what my broadside tries to address, <laughs> is if the UN, my argument being, if the UN is imperfect, is all we've got, then it's time to devise something else. Because what we've got is a corrosive influence on the sort of better developments, free societies of the world, and is also constantly expanding. One of the things that the UN does, like any government organization, and this is a collective of governments, is it keeps extending its reach, expanding its influence, and using more and more of your tax dollars while it does it, because one of the things that the founders uh, arranged for was this constant inflow of money, especially from the United States, which pays for about a quarter of it. 
And the problem here is uh, just how imperfect is this? We often, you'll read in the newspaper one about one UN scandal after another. They tend to break quite often. Uh, peacekeeper rape, the bringing of cholera through incompetent management, basically, to Haiti, which didn't actually need more disasters. This was brought by UN peacekeepers. Uh, the fact that uh, the scandals the scandals are numerous, Charlotte. But <laughs> for instance, that the form, a form, recent former head of the UN General Assembly uh, was found dead in his home last year after he was charged in a U.S. federal court with a corruption scheme, a kickback deal, using his position as head of the General Assembly to uh, basically franchise the UN, use the UN reputation to help um, somebody's ventures in Macau. Uh, there, there are big scandals, the oil for food scandal, which was this colossal money laundering scandal involving everything from Saddam Hussein sending funds to Palestinian suicide bombers to bribing, targeting for bribes and bribing uh, high-ranking officials and governments that sat on the Security Council to simply uh, the UN's role in laundering enormous amounts of money around the world for Baghdad, uh, which enriched Saddam Hussein, while the UN told us that this was all going to sick children, hungry children, it was all going for humanitarian relief. Um, the Cash for Kim scandal, which involved the UN basically using its immunities to help North Korea's tyrant, then Kim Jong-il, father of the current dictator, uh, bring dual-use items into the country. Those would be things that can be used for weapons technology. Um, the UN gave millions of dollars to the North Korean government. All of this, again, under the label of helping people of humanitarian works. And the list goes on and on. But as you read these scandals, you think people will then very often say, gee, that doesn't sound good. We need to fix this. The problem is that's essentially what the UN is configured to do. It produces these things because it's made in some ways to be both corrupt and morally bankrupt. And when you look at the design, what you see is you can try to fix them one after another, but you can't really fix this United Nations. It's not a democracy as we understand it, okay? When, when you read about the UN, it sounds like a democracy sort of like us. They take votes. They have a secretary general who sounds like the president. They have a general assembly, which sounds like the legislature. Uh, they have a security council, you know, which is one of the major authorities that sounds, I don't know, maybe sort of like the Supreme Court. It's not. This is a place where most of the members are not fully accountable to the people they represent, they, they claim to represent, where you have, for instance, a seat for China that doesn't represent the people of China. That's not that the, the government of China isn't really elected by them. It's a decaying communist party that's been in power there since 1949. Um, North Korea has a seat. That's not because it doesn't give the people of North Korea a voice at the UN. It gives the regime of Kim Jong-un a voice at the UN. And so it goes. And if you actually look at the numbers, the majority of countries there are not free countries. So you have a setup in which the worst elements of government around the world get a substantial voice within the framework of the UN. 
Um, they also, the UN also provides immunities. So a great deal can be done without anyone being accountable in any way. It operates across jurisdictions. So again, very hard to bring anybody to account, very hard to make them actually disclose what's really going on in there. They're also protected by the fact that a lot of UN jargon is incredibly boring. So wading through <laughs> things like even when you can get hold of them, their internal audit reports, which they now make available, except with sort of doctored, they, they redact out or they keep out all sorts of details that would really tell you what's going on. It's, it's just difficult to get a handle on, very hard to bring anybody to account. So you sort of have a system here that, that claims to provide, to represent the aspiration toward world justice, but is itself not subject to any particular system of justice. What you get out of this basically is an institution that has no real moral compass, which is going to give North Korea the same privileges as Belgium. And uh, we, see, we see that actually in practice in a lot of what it does isn't really accountable and yet sort of occupies effectively this monopoly position as the, the institution that's supposed to help create a better world on which uh, it spends a lot of our money uh, basically putting out propaganda, telling everybody what a great job it's doing. And again, where around the world is the precise set of actors who is going to call them out and say, wait a minute, you know, you, that's not what you're actually delivering. So you have a design here that actually makes it very hard to not just get this under control or fix it, but stop it from doing whatever it really is going to do. And it isn't really accountable to the people it claims to serve. It's a great, in, a, in brief, it's a great big club of governments. <laughs> And uh, if you think our own government, which is actually a democratic, you know, what is the a democratic government uh, governing one of the f freest countries in the world? If you think we have problems with our government, okay, now look at the UN, a club of governments, which includes not only ours but 192 others. There are 193 member states at the UN, many of which don't account to their own people at all. So you have a real problem here for what, what can you actually do? How do you reform this? What do you, and it's, again, the argument I'm, I've laid out is basically you cannot reform this. It is like trying to reform George Orwell's animal farm. Uh, um, you've got to do something else. I'm going to get to that, but before, before, before we do, I, I just want to establish something. Claudia, what does the U.N. cost the United States? What do we give these folks every year? Many billions. Um, it's actually a little hard to get a handle on because it doesn't just come from the State Department. And very often you'll hear debates over the amount that were assessed for dues. That's dues for the General Assembly. It's a tiny fraction of the entire U.N. system. Um, right now the U.N. itself reports that for its its entire system, the General Assembly plus its agencies and so on, it spends upwards of $40 billion a year. That's a lot of money, $40 billion, okay? That the, those are the revenues it brings in, but that's a pretty good idea of what it spends. The UN doesn't really manufacture things, okay? So it's a good proxy. Of that, the U.S. probably co contributes roughly one quarter 
Um, the numbers would suggest a little bit less, but what the UN itself reports, is, and this roughly tallies with what you can glean from the U.S., is about $10 billion a year, okay, $10 wow. billion with a B. That's a lot of money, and uh, it's important to remember that might sound like a, an error term at this point in our staggering budget, but uh, it's money that goes for use by governments around the world. Okay, it's, it's filtered through this club of governments. So there's enormous leverage to whatever this money does, uh, not necessarily for the good, not necessarily for feeding hungry children, but for promoting very questionable programs, for supporting envoys whose work does not actually promote peace, for supporting peacekeeping missions that don't actually keep peace. And uh, this has, amount has been rising year after year. Um, $10 billion is substantially more than, let's see, back around 2011, it was $7 billion. Okay, it has soared. It soared under President Obama from everything we can tell. And it rose under President Bush before him. It just keeps rising. So we pay for roughly 20 to 25% of the system. We pay 22% of the annual dues to the General Assembly. Uh, the U.S. is the biggest single contributor to the United Nations. And that's something we really need to rethink and, uh, I think, stop. Well, Claudia, how, how feasible is that? You said it can't, that the U.N. pretty much can't be reformed, and yet a lot of people regard it as it's, it's a sacred cow for a lot of people. And if you talk about abolishing it, they're going to be up in arms. Oh, oh, it's an idealistic institution. How really feasible is it that we could abolish this institution? Very hard, okay? Daunting, difficult. Um, and again, the argument I'm making is that it is daunting. It is difficult. It's hard to see how to do. Um, at the same time, it's also daunting to think that you have an institution entrenched in the middle of world politics as the leading world body that actually is on balance malign toward the interests of the free world, the interests it was supposed to promote that actually often helps to stir up trouble or keeps it festering until it gets really big. Let me give you two quick examples. Uh, Iran and North Korea. Iran with a nuclear deal that's not going to stop its nuclear bomb program. And North Korea, which is testing nuclear bombs and now threatening to test ballistic missiles weekly. Okay. The UN has been sanctioning both of those countries and uh, since 2006. Well, with Iran, it now has a nuclear deal enshrined under the UN where the sanctions from the UN are gone. But this is all on some promise that Iran is going to leave alone its nuclear bomb program. That doesn't explain why it's still testing ballistic missiles. By the way, ignoring the UN call in that same resolution uh, to stop. Um, the, the, uh, with North Korea, it clearly hasn't done anything. North Korea has continued. Okay, we have a setup here where something else has to happen. And with the United Nations, uh, if it's leading us toward real trouble, and I think it is, it's at this point on balance, it's impelling us in the direction of much bigger conflict. What do you do? Um, and one of the things that has jumped out at me is that there, nobody really does ever recommend a real a serious plan for how do we get out of the UN. It's got to be possible. 
it would take a lot of work. I think it would take a determined American president. It would take leadership uh, and a real will to do it. And I don't think it's something you could just do overnight. You would have a mess. You'd have chaos. But one possible model, uh, there are several possible routes. And my first recommendation, the thing I'm really I'm calling for in this booklet, is it's time to, for somebody to pull together real experts on how the UN works on, uh, how the, on what is called international law, on the system of conventions and so on, and plot out, try and plot out a roadmap for how you might do this. There's talk now of, again, a sort of community of democracies. That's been tried. It didn't really get anywhere. Um, maybe there's some traction to be had I, if by trying it again. But there, I think that the model is the way that the approach that made the most sense with those enormous communist enterprises in the former Soviet Union and in China. What do you do? It's virtually impossible to just dismantle them. They're too plugged into every aspect of a dysfunctional system. And they have played too big a part in the lives of their employees. It's very hard to just shutter them overnight. You're going to deliver a tremendous shock to the system. Well, the best solution was let competition grow up around them. Give others the chance to do something that offers a competing service. Thus, going back to the question, if, it, if it's imperfect but all we've got, well, what is it that we can devise? Uh, I think, let me set out the principle first. The essence of freedom, real modern progress, the, the things that we really value, I think, in the United States, and I'm talking about U.S. interests here, depend on competition. Democracy is basically a system of competitive political interests and factions and voices, right? Uh, not a single party at the top. Markets, again, depend on competition. We benefit tremendously when there are alternatives. Uh, so here, I think the way we could address this, and it would be a way to begin to draw away from the UN, would be ask what are the real functions that the, the UN is supposed to handle that we need, and look for ways to set up coalitions, sort of like NATO during the Cold War, that go around the UN, that actually allow, are driven by a mission, not necessarily by the ideal of world peace, which I think is very dangerous. I prefer to substitute there the uh, ideal of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, <laughs> which leaves you room to defend the free world versus world peace, which is sort of morally neutral, you know, as long as nobody's fighting, that's okay by the UN, even if they're dying miserably in a place like North Korea under their own ruler. But to set up coalitions that actually try to address, you know, what are the major things that we need to do? If we want to try and have peacekeeping missions, is it really the case that this should all be run through a general assembly where the second largest voting bloc is currently led by Venezuela? Uh, and was until recently led by Iran and before that by Egypt and before that by Cuba. And, you know, or would it be possible to set up a more functional coalition and say, okay, this coalition will arrange for dealing with what we used to call peacekeeping missions. Um, and there, 
I think you need not have sort of a monolithic set of uh, institution that creates as fractals all these subsidiary bodies. Again, this is the 21st century. Technology, when the UN was set up, it was a lot harder for people to communicate and it made a lot more sense for everybody to come sit down in one room and try and hash things out there. At this point, the, the transactions cost, if you like, of being able to set up coalitions, communicate with them, sort out what we're going to do are much, much lower. And again, it all sounds very difficult. Well, the UN is very difficult. It's just that it's entrenched. And I think if we were to say, okay, if, how do you actually go about doing this? Don't take it as a premise that we should debate whether to leave the UN. Take it as a starting premise that we must, that we need to find something better for the next generation. And then ask, all right, how do we do this? Claudia, this is a great interview, but I have to go back. You said something really scary in the last, uh, in this answer just completed. You said you indicated that the UN itself may be um, impelling us uh, in the direction of serious conflict. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, it was started to curtail conflict, but what kind of conflict could it be leading us towards? Yes, sure. What it basically does is offer legitimacy to uh, the worst countries. In effect, it's sort of a transfer mechanism. America, we talk all the time about uh, America's money for the UN, and that's a very big issue. Without that money, the UN would have to go elsewhere, look elsewhere. But uh, it's possible that at least as important, and maybe even more so, effectively we transfer legitimacy. You know, the, the U.S., whatever people's view on a daily basis around the world, is an enormous power. And by and large, it's been a beacon to the world since the U.N. was founded in World War II. It's the U.S. that has really imbued the U.N. with this tremendous presence, gravitas, and so on. And we also host it in the middle of in midtown Manhattan. And as we discussed earlier, pour all this money into it. Meantime, you get countries that from Russia to China to you know, current Venezuela to North Korea to Iran to Sudan, you can go, it's, it's a long list actually, that come to the UN. And regardless of the degree of misrule, uh, they get a seat, they get the same privileges as any democratic state, they get a voice, they get a platform, and this actually matters not only in the way that this world business is conducted at the UN, but very often back home. This is something that they project back to their captive populations. Uh, when you see, I'm taking North Korea as an example because it's highly visible and it's clear what I'm talking about, but you can apply this to many. When a North Korean envoy comes to New York and speaks on the UN General Assembly world stage before their golden backdrop, uh, that plays back into Pyongyang as, look, North Korea is accepted. It's an important country on the world stage. <laughs> uh, the people of the world will sit and listen and maybe even applaud, actually, which they tend to do, um, when he speaks. Iran's envoys routinely come and do that. It's, it's, the UN basically says, we dignify all of these presences. And what you're doing there is you're conferring legitimacy on the, worst, the world's worst troublemakers, 
it is pretty consistent that the troubles in, in the world, you know, the real threat to, if you like, world peace, but I think it might be more useful to call it world freedom. That's really what we're defending. That's what we were defending in World War II, at least in the United States. Yeah. Um, the real threat comes from these countries. And we're not worried that France is about to attack us, whatever our differences. We are concerned right now about North Korea. We have very legitimate concerns about Russia. We have rising problems with China. Uh, and Iran is a serious problem, menace, growing danger in the Middle East. So the U.S. basically legitimizes a lot of interests very hostile to the free world. And that actually sets the stage for real conflict. Um, if I can get a little more, get more concrete on this, uh, okay. we saw a test of this under President Obama, who got into office saying, I'm going to put the UN at the center of US foreign policy. I pretty much did. That was part of what leading from behind in Libya was all about. And the result has been the rise of a dramatically more dangerous world. The U.S. stepped away from its role as a leader of the free world. And what we've seen is four of North Korea's five nuclear tests were conducted during that time. Uh, and a, a new generation of the, the heir, the, the, the grandson of the founding tyrant appears to have consolidated his grip there. We saw China accelerate its island building in the South China Sea, which is, again, a turf grab that's dangerous to any world order. When you start having countries grabbing territory, you're setting the stage for a real war. We saw Russia grab Crimea from Ukraine and simply get away with it. And remember, Russia has a veto on the Security Council. So you have a sort of paralyzed UN right up front. But you also have a situation where even when the UN is able to pass resolutions, as I mentioned earlier, it's been passing sanctions resolutions on North Korea for years. Uh, they haven't really stopped anything. Um, part of what happens there being the UN relies on member states to police themselves. Well, <laughs> you know, in the case of a country like Syria, we see how that works. So you've got a problem there that we transfer away uh, not only resources, but credibility, ability to act, and we let these, these things fester on at the UN, and what you have is sort of a rising anti-American access there. Um, one, the obsessive focus at the UN on the democratic state of Israel stirs constant trouble in the Middle East. Uh, and again, the UN there is a source of potential conflict, not a solution. It keeps it on the boil. It provides a framework for it. So all these things put together give you a UN where if you set aside for a minute the propaganda that the UN itself puts out with its $100 million public information budget and more money for its agencies, again, which U.S. tax dollars help pay, substantially help pay for. And you have an organization that in many ways gives a much more prominent role and set of levers to the world's worst actors and at the same time provides American governments with a way to kick the can down the road. That's how you get what's going on now with North Korea. Nobody wants to solve it. They take it to the UN where it doesn't get solved and it emerges even worse. You know, wait for it when the carnage in Syria subsides, 
Hezbollah is going to, despite the beefed up UN peacekeeping force there, is likely to launch its next attack on Israel. That's, that's the reality of the UN. And that's one of the things that I think we need to put together that picture. And instead of thinking, well, it failed here and it failed there, but the intentions are good, say, actually, we have a mechanism here that chronically fails. And we've got to find some better way. The, the, one more note on that. Um, it's, there's a temptation to credit the UN that since the founding of the UN in 1945, there's been no next world war. Okay? There was the Cold War, the Soviet-US standoff, but there hasn't been a global conflagration like World War II. Well, I think that the UN gets credit there for something where it's actually the United States that deserves the credit. This is, that has been the period of the Pax Americana where it's the U.S. that has led, that stood, stood up to the Soviet Union in the Cold War, that provided leadership since, except we get to the term of President Obama when the U.S. basically backed away, and look at the trouble that's arisen. So what you have here is the U.N. getting credit for something done by the U.S. in which the U.S. has been enormously hamstrung by the U.N. system, you know, trying to hoard to trade behind the scenes with Russia and China to persuade them not to veto things at the Security Council. Or as we saw, as we saw in the case of President Obama's resolution that effectively attacked Israel at the end of last December, um, when uh, the U.S. simply stood aside and didn't veto a, dam a resolution damning to one of its closest allies, Israel, and the Security Council immediately passed it. Um, so you have a very dangerous set of mechanisms with the UN. And again, what I'm calling for is a clear-eyed look at this. And with the question of, all right, instead of just saying, sort of saying rhetorically, we need to stop this, could we please begin the real serious debate about how do we invent, devise, create something better for the 21st century? Probably not another monolithic institution but a set of more agile coalitions that are actually not driven by the sort of the malleable, unclear, and morally, morally neutral or empty notion of world peace, but are driven instead by actual U.S. interests, the free world, what is it that we need? Claudia, this has been fascinating. I need to ask you one more thing. This has been a great conversation, as I knew it would be. Um, I knew you were working on a big book about the U.N. You've done absolutely groundbreaking reporting on the U.N. Now, this is a broadside from Encounter Broadsides. Is, is this the big book, or, or is this an interim book? How did this come about? No, this is, this is a, this is a long-form essay in, published in sort of a small book pamphlet form, um, it's these these encounter broadsides are modeled on the Federalist Papers. I find that uh, that's that's quite a goal to shoot for. But basically, <laughs> that's the format. Um, and now the bigger book is uh, goes into the story of the oil for food scandal, which the UN now denies, and why that actually shows us how the UN really functions. That was the first time that a truly major UN program has just been sort of cut wide open for the world to peer into with the overthrow of Saddam. That was the effect on that 
huge UN overseas that was your humanitarian story. program. Yeah, and then goes on to say, here's how this actually, what this tells us about the UN, and then here are more of the cases that show you this was not in its problems, this was not at all unique. It was actually a template of what goes wrong with the UN. And again, here's why we need to fix things, but you can extend it out to everything from the UN's role in climate change, whatever you think about the climate, the big question there to me is, should the UN be involved in doing anything about it? Because the UN, pro the UN proposal is basically state planning, which has been a disaster everywhere. Um, the UN's role in relief generally, which is it's called relief, but very often what you get is money going to the dictators who keep their countries poor, their countrymen poor, and so on. So, yeah, that's a bigger look at how things have really worked. And, uh, and as the UN tries to pretend that the oil for food scandal never took place, yeah, they've removed the website for the inquiry. They stopped paying for it, I guess. They found it not worthwhile. It's, well, what prompted uh, you to do this broadside, Claudia? Oh, what prompted – well, there was for the first time a chance in years, a chance that something might be done at the UN. Um, when Trump won the when President Trump won the election, he had been saying things very critical of the UN, asking, "Does it really do any good?" Saying it's useless, uh, and I thought, well, actually, the problem isn't that it's useless, but that it's dangerous. I had a conversation with the publisher of Encounter Books, Roger Kimball, uh, what to do because it seemed a good moment to publish something that addressed right away what is the basic problem with the UN what is it that we need to start doing what is the debate we seriously need to have and uh, that's what encounter broadsides are for it's a way of quickly getting out something that's long enough to really try really make the case and at the same time short enough to be read in one sitting and quickly turned around which is what we did so this is now out under the title what to do about the UN encounter broadside number 50 and uh, uh, what I'm hoping is that it will help prompt a real debate if I might Charlotte the model is I have in mind here is <laughs> in the film Apollo 13 when something goes desperately wrong with a mission to the moon based on the real story uh, in the film there's a moment when the astronauts in space are running our being overwhelmed by carbon monoxide, and the ground crew in Houston has to come up with a way to read to jury rig what the astronauts have on board, so their carbon monoxide scrubbers will start working again. And they don't have much time to do it. They dump out on a table everything available to the astronauts, and they just say, "This is exactly what you've got to work with. Now figure out a solution." And they go to work. And it seems impossible when they begin. And by the time they're done, They've figured out an answer. And again, it has to be possible. It's daunting. And all the incentives are for nobody to try to do it because for any individual, it's too big a thing to try to reform the U, try to, sorry, to try to go over there, to try to go around the UN, supplant the UN, devise something else. We default to the idea of trying to reform it. And what I'm saying, and what one of the things that we were trying to get out quickly is you can try to reform the UN you will not succeed. It will defeat you. You can do a few things here and there, but we have on our hands a bigger problem. And if the idea is really to serve future generations, we have to 
look at how can we address that. So that was the idea. And there is much more to be said about the UN, but this, uh, this broadside is an attempt to put in one place, in one easily readable pamphlet, the case for really looking for a plan for how do we, how do we replace the UN, whether we go around it, go over it, uh, defund it first, find some way to set up coalitions that do something else. But some real debate needs to begin. And this is an attempt to say, that's what we need right now. We need it more than, more than certainly more than the UN would like us to think, but we need it more than uh, it might appear. And I've tried to lay out the reasons why. Claudia, congratulations. You're getting all sorts of attention on this. So I'm really uh, grateful that you could, could come and talk to us this morning. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Claudia, and thank you, everyone who's tuned in. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.